Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Jay Hakim. Jay, would you like to introduce yourself? Good morning. My name is Jay Hakim, and I uh, live in the Chicago area, and I've been working for a long time, since the last century, since the last like millennia, uh, typically in data space as well as software engineering teams. And uh, typically, I uh, typically it's been in like management roles. However, I did come up through the technical ranks. Um, so, in a quick summary, that's who I am, and I can go into a lot more detail if you've got some questions. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you you mentioned that you've kind of worked on both the management and the technical side, um, and how would you? Um, which, first of all, which one did you prefer? Which one aligned with your skill sets better? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, early on, so I did a bachelor's as well as a master's in computer science. And I like the challenge of having a technical program. However, I quickly realized that I never really enjoyed programming. <laughs> so, so I could do it. But that's not really, I did enjoy the technical challenge of solving a problem. However, just being by myself and going through the code and going through some great detail, never truly like, uh, never really was a passion that I had. I had a passion for creating technical solutions. And in addition to my computer science background, I have a bachelor's in finance. So I really also... Uh, had a passion for the business side of things, the finance side of things. So I quickly determined in my mid-20s that I really wanted to go into like management because I really looked at that as a way to blend uh, some technical background and my you know, interest to solving technical problems along with solving a business problem and understanding stuff from from a like business sense. So I... Um, so it was early on in my career that I said, hmm, I think that I want to go into the software side of software and go into like management. Mm-hmm. And how was that transition? The transition was, I wouldn't say perfect, uh, but it was pretty well. I think it took me a while to understand how to be a good manager. And for some people, I think it comes pretty naturally. To me, there was some parts of it that were pretty natural. However, the softer side of working with people and knowing how much direction to give them, uh, how much freedom in allowing them to be creative, that that for me took some time. You know, it's like if you see someone going down a wrong path or what you think is going to be a wrong path, how much freedom and flexibility do uh you truly give them. I also have learned um, that sometimes, a lot of times, people are very intelligent and they'll come up with solutions that I didn't think of. So just because they're not going to do things the way that I think that they should, a lot of times, I, a lot of times, truly a lot of times, I've been very pleasantly surprised with creative ways, with other ways people have come up with solving problems. Uh, so it took me a while to truly realize that. Cool. So it sounds like um, almost the management process made you more humble as an employee. 
Yes, totally. Totally humble. Yes. There's been a lot of humbling moments that I've gotten some feedback that, you know, I thought that was very good at, let's say, communication. I got some feedback. Well, you're not really communicating all that well or various other things or, you know what, you could have articulated that better or provided some better context or given us a better idea of the roadmap. So it is, it has truly been a uh, humbling process. It really has. Mm -hmm. And would you say that people are generally understanding that a transition to a management role will require some sort of a learning curve? Um, I think that people typically, well, I think it depends, right? So if you come into a company as a manager, then they're expecting you to operate at that level, right? So I think that it depends how you get like introduced into that role. In one role that I had, I was a technical person uh, and even had helped hire my you know colleagues. So I was like engineer uh, in a pool of about a dozen people. And uh, one day I was promoted to be that manager and all of a sudden their expectations of me changed, flipped. Uh, and I remember talking with a colleague and the colleague was not very happy with uh, something. And then she pointed at me and like, you caused this, blah, blah, blah. And 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 the reality was I was not a manager at that time. But because I was the manager at that time, I was <laughs> then in her mind responsible for the decisions of prior management uh you know, people. So I think it depends the way that you get promoted or the way that you get like introduced into the job. If it's something that is within that same company with that same pool of people, people are very understanding. But if you're coming into a new company where people don't know your context, they're going to expect you to be operating at that level. Where would you say it, where would you say is the most efficient sized company to learn how to be a manager at? Would you say like it's easier to learn how to be a manager at like a super big company with lots of resources, maybe a medium sized company, you know, where there's some, you know, a balance? What do you think? That's a good question because I've really worked at, you know, some of the uh, small sized companies. Once I was a employee of a company that started out at six people and have been working at some of the biggest blue chip companies that there is. I would, and I've been at mid-sized companies. Um, I think that mid-sized companies, when I say mid-sized, I might think of that between 500 and a couple thousand people. In my experience, those companies have invested, at least in the experiences that I've had, they invest in management training. Uh, so I, I've gone through some management training classes, which were very, very good. And they, and people are also, uh, providing, you know, my, my past managers, uh, providing me some guidance and counseling along the way. That being said, I think that there's a little bit more forgiveness at companies of that size. I think compared to, uh, much, much larger company i'm thinking about some of the blue chips that i've been to they're really expecting you to be very buttoned up and uh following the right processes right away um and the smaller size companies 
uh, the smaller size companies are actually like interesting um, because there, in my experience, there's no formal training on what to expect, uh, but you are able to morph into being a hundred percent contributor to someone that's morphing into like management. So you're able to contribute as well as management. So if you're wanting to crawl, walk, run into like management, I think the smaller size companies give you the opportunity to crawl, walk, run and morph into being like manager. So I think it depends, uh, but definitely not the bigger size companies in my experience. It's either the smaller size or the mid-sized companies give you uh, a better, a better opportunity to like onboard into that role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you ever kind of wish you had gotten an MBA? I know that MBAs are like all the craze. You didn't, you didn't go for one. What do you, how do you feel about that now? So when I did my bachelor's, I did a bachelor's of both bachelor in science and computer science, as well as finance. And around my junior year, I was starting to explore what I want to do next. Uh, At first, I explored going to law school um, because I thought that that would be a perfect combination of either that software background and doing stuff like patents or possibly finance. So I actually took a pre-law class and I studied for the LSAT a long time and I took that test. And through my experience uh, of doing that, I quickly, well, I don't know if I would say quickly, but I realized I didn't want to go into law because that was not going to leverage my uh, truly, my truly natural talents. Um, So then I pursued, do I want to go into business school into getting MBA or computer science? And at that time, in order to go into the top tier like MBA schools, they really wanted you to have somewhere between two to four years of work experience. And at that time in my life, the economy was not that good. Um, so I didn't want to go into the workforce. So I decided I wanted to continue with going to school until the economy turned better. So then I turned my attention to focusing on very good uh, software uh, very good software, like engineering programs that I can do my master's at. But if I had made the choice differently, I think that my career would have turned out extremely differently uh, if I had stayed within the business side of things. Who knows what Who knows what that would have turned out to uh, be? I frankly don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about that right now. Um, if I were to go for a graduate degree, would I go for something more technical? or something more business related and it's really tough to tell yeah it's tough to tell it's tough to tell what what future paths would turn out like into uh and i think i would just uh you know any counsel that i would have is just listen to your gut of what type of work that you'd like to be doing you know what is your passion analytics Analytics. There you go. We'll do it. Okay. I (laughs) love it. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Yeah. I I also feel like the school matters a lot. So like being at a school where you feel like you're surrounded by like people that you could see yourself building businesses with. So, you know, people you respect, people that, um, you know, 
just whatever whatever culture works best with you uh, make sure that 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 you're getting that at the university too i think that matters a lot i think it does too i think um given the strength of the program or the non-strength of the program i think that you would want to select a school that has a strong program in the field that you want to study uh and by doing so that will recruit um other students that are very high caliber that also have a uh, passion for doing the type of things that you all uh, that you plan on doing, and I think that that's really like energizing to go to school with similar minded people or pa- or people that have a passion in that same general space. And I think that you would find that you would have a very good, um, very good experience going to school and taking the classes with people that are just very sharp and have that passion. So that's the other focus that I would probably recommend that choosing a school with a very good program um, and certain schools, actually you talked about possibly starting in a business, certain schools just have a reputation that a lot of uh, students turn out in the, um, from various projects, they start various companies. They're kind of like incubators and certain schools like University of Chicago, for example, have a particular like incubator uh, program just for people that want to have uh, startup companies from thoughts from thoughts that they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely tempting. I will say that. Um, and uh, I want to I want to actually switch topics slightly. So um, from the university angle to uh, your career. So, um, can you tell us about sort of your, you know, your career progression, um, and how has the industry that you've been involved with, um, which uh, I'll leave it to you to explain, um, how has that developed? Yeah. So that's a good question. So I started out my very first couple jobs were at, uh, very large companies uh fortune 50 companies and uh, i think that i'm attracted i'm naturally attracted uh, to marquee names and i went into those companies and my experience was okay you know fine good uh but i really never thought i never really felt like i that i was a big company person um and at the time my wife was actually at uh, if I could call it a sexy startup company, and I could tell that she was just getting more entrenched, more, more, uh, having more fun uh, from a career point of view, and really growing in different ways that I was at these very big companies. So, um, within a few years, I decided to take the plunge from mega large company to startup companies, and I also experienced um that i uh going through a couple startups uh, there were true startups so one company was when i joined about 25 people and the other one started out at six and then it grew to a few hundred people i truly had a feeling like at that smaller companies i had to grow and uh participate perform at a very deep level as well as a pretty broad level. So I really 
uh, firmly believe that those gave me the opportunity to develop the strengths of what I, you know, have now. And and I firmly believe that I would not be in my current role if I had stayed at very large companies. I would have been a different person. Um, and I've since then I've tried out a couple large companies, and now I've gravitated towards smaller size companies. When I say smaller size companies, I mean a few, you know, a couple hundred to a few hundred people. Uh, I just find that you have a lot more flexibility and freedom uh less uh there's less politics or less like bureaucracy in order to get things done and i just find at the end of the day i feel much more rewarded like i've made a like difference um when i go to work i have changed something hopefully for the better um but it just uh, i have found it's a lot more rewarding and that i have learned and grown in a lot of different ways. Would you say that innovation necessitates mistakes? Yes, largely when you're provided a challenge and you need to quickly come up with a solution, mistakes are a part of the process. And that's fine. That's good. You're expected to come up with like mistakes. Uh, kind of like Thomas Edison trying to create a lot of the things like they like light bulb. He was trying to create what we currently know as, you know, what we currently know as the light bulb. And he had to make like mistakes. So in order to come up with a working solution, that all of your plans are going to be spawned on for the uh, first try. And because of that, you need to try something out, but you also need to quickly understand that that's a mistake and then pivot and uh, change. So, uh, there's a famous military saying that uh, I don't know if I'm quoting this exactly spot on, but no good battle plan survives the first encounter with the like, enemy. So you can make a plan on how to solve the problem, but you need to quickly uh, retool the plan after you find out more. And I think that that's where uh, smaller size companies really shine is they give you that flexibility to try to try out something really fast. And if that works, that's great. If it doesn't work, then you try something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, so going back to your career um, progression, um, you said you started at a very large company and then you transitioned to small companies. So what industry were those companies generally in for you? Yeah. So the smaller size companies have been predominantly in the e-commerce space. Um, so back in the dot-com era, for example, uh, worked at a bill payment and presentment company, which was novel at the time. Uh, bill payment was around at the time. Uh, banks were just starting to do, and, and I'm going back to 1999 to to year or two thousand so banks at the time were just starting to offer bill payment to its customers sometimes with a fee at the time but the bill presentment was truly something new and the bill presentment uh the company concept was being able to present any bill that you have or if, if you know that you have a car bill that you say oh pay my 300 dollar car bill on the first of the month for the next 
36 months. Anyways, this was an e-commerce company that had a fair amount of back-end processing too. And it really came with a great challenge of uh, how to create an e-commerce company, make sure it's secure. We were dealing with making lots of different payments from people's checking account every single day. <laughs> so you better make sure that there's no fraud. Um, it always had to be up, right? So people throughout the country paying their bills or getting their bills throughout their day um, and various. And we also had some uh, business partners uh, that were providing us customers. And those business partners needed to have reports. How many how many new customers do they have? What's, what are their customers doing on their platform? Uh, so on and so forth. So given that, and at the smaller size company, the scope of what I had was on the data platforms, one, making sure that their operational systems were very fast, right? People log in, it's really quick. They can see their bills. They can see their billers and uh, what they've done in the past as well as from a reporting point of view, uh, internally as well as to our partners, can they get the information that they're looking for in a timely fashion? Mm -hmm. And how did you support that through your deliverables? Yeah. So I, fortunately, I was in a role. I mean, that's the company that I was at. Uh, I was one of the first employees, I think employee number six, and it grew to a few hundred people. I was able, at that role, that was the role that I was able to start at the company as a doer, as like engineer, which I truly loved, and became a manager. But companies of that size, you're a manager slash doer. So you do as well as you uh, are asked to see the bigger picture and hire uh, people that will help fulfill you with your roadmap. Um, so back to your question, how is it able, so I, is I had a couple of different roles. One, like I said, to make sure that our front end transactional system was modeled well, it performed well, uh, and that was at the time fairly cutting edge at the time. So e-commerce platforms back in 1999 to 2000 were around, uh, but it was fairly immature. So really needed to learn how the technology worked under the covers and really become a master at like databases, right? Really had to understand databases uh, for a particular vendor. The uh, platform was like Oracle, which was a very popular platform at the time. Understand how that worked uh, as well as from a process point of view, had to put steps into place to manage changes and ensure the appropriate changes got propagated from our staging up to production. From a analytics point of view, uh, the um, I would say that the market was not very mature at the time. You had some bigger players, but they were pretty expensive, complicated platforms. So for smaller sized companies like us, it really did not make uh, sense. So it was how do we bring um, the data into an analytics platform that will be able to perform very well, but it does not take a lot of hand, you know, holding. How can we create something? We were not a big company. We didn't have a team of five to 10 people. So how can one to two people come up with a solution to make sure that the data 
is fairly seamlessly flowing into an analytics platform and that your queries are pretty fast, right? So the type of queries that you do from a reporting point of view, which is tell me uh, how many bills did did my partners pay and what's the makeup of the bills. Those type of queries are very different from an individual logging in to see their bills and make a payment. So it's a transactional, um, very quick, very short transactional process from a very large or like analytical type of query. And that actually made me think about things from a data model point of view extremely differently. And that was a transitional period that I needed to rethink what I had just learned on the transactional side, but from a reporting side, think about things differently. And that was truly a learning experience for me at that time. Very cool. Very cool. So having uh, having an understanding of the history of how databases are kind of maintained or uh, con- or built uh, and constructed and configured, where do you think the industry is going next? Where do you think the next disruption will be? Yeah, so that's a good question. There is a disruption that is already taking place right in front of us. So historically, you would buy a database platform and that was... Uh, that might have that might have been Oracle or SQL Server. Teradata was a very big player, and their license costs were relatively, you know, large. It were very hefty license costs. However, for that license cost, you got very good support on the other side. Um, however, s- since then, the volume of data has truly grown huge it's really uh uh orders orders of like magnitude higher with the people using mobile phones and tracking what people are doing on their website or phone there's just so much more data and the scale is just so much more so there's been under the covers there's been a lot of uh no sql solutions or using a data lake type of process in order to easily store this data and technologies that are able to process um, this data in a timely fashion. So that's been a transformation in order to try to manage uh, large sets of data. However, earlier on, that was really cutting edge technology and you really needed to have a good team of very talented like engineers in order to manage that and get that working reliably. However, in the past several years, there's been some new technologies like Snowflake that actually get that working in a way that you don't need to, you don't need to understand that technology and how things work under the covers. It just does it for you. So you're able to process very large volumes of data in a way that really like obfuscates a lot of the technology under the covers. However, also coupled with that, the ability to uh, what Snowflake and other technologies which are similar 
that you're able to scale up your compute, you know, like instantaneously. So for example, during the day, you might have all types of users that are doing queries and wanting to find out patterns and trends. And that's great. But maybe starting at six o'clock PM to six o'clock like AM, there's very, very little going on. So your so your compute patterns or your need to have compute greatly vary. And that makes a lot of sense. So in the past, you would have to buy hardware or even if you're dealing with in the cloud, you would procure servers of a certain size and you would be paying for that 24-7. But in today's paradigm of Snowflake and other competitors, you're truly only paying for the compute power that you use at the time. And that's a game. And that to me is a really big game changer in terms of how you can scale up and scale down uh, seamlessly. I have a I have a question. Have you seen The Founder? I have not. Okay. I just watched it yesterday. It's about um, the McDonald's uh, founders and the story of how it became uh, such a national uh, brand. And it was fascinating. It was, I mean, definitely ethically wrong <laughs> uh, or at least that's the way they portrayed in the film um and uh it was but it was fascinating to me um and the key development change that turned mcdonald's into this giant nationwide corporation was when the the guy in charge the guy who kind of took charge from the original founders when was it ray crock uh yes yes ray crock exactly yes when so there was like two mcdonald's brothers i'm kind of spoiling it uh so spoiler alert um the the ray the the brothers tried to um kind of keep the company and ray's trying to grow the company and so they kind of have this division and ray was advised by uh this other guy who turned out to be one of the leaders of the company later that mcdonald's was not in the food business. He's not going to become rich off of 1% of 15 cent hamburgers. He was, he was in the real estate business. And if, and if he could buy real estate and lease it back to McDonald's, then he could have actual control over the company because um, that's how they could hold them accountable uh, to good standards. Um, and, and that was a very interesting uh, development and and that's something that from a business perspective I found to be very interesting. So I noticed a similarity when you were talking about server farms, that there's almost two sides to a company like Snowflake. They are in the software as a service business. I mean they have their own software and and people pay a lot of money to use it, but they also have to use it on their servers. And so there's this entire other side of the business when they're creating their own real estate um, and using that uh, just the same way that McDonald's did. So would you say that this is like a similar move that Snowflake is making? And, you know, I don't know. Do you know any other examples? Well, so one, I, I'm loosely aware of the like McDonald's paradigm. And I think I'm not a expert, but I think that they actually, for the McDonald's restaurants, I think that they actually, the, McDonald's property buys or the McDonald's company buys the property and then they lease it back to the franchisee. I don't know 
if that's true. So they have a revenue stream of that franchisee, which is basically renting that like McDonald's property from them. So uh, that is a revenue stream that McDonald's uh, has in addition to supplying the food stuff that the franchisees make the food. Um, in, in terms of Snowflake, um, my understanding is that the company runs itself. They run the servers not in their own data centers, but either in in one of the three or one of the two more popular cloud providers. So I know that they run in AWS. They run in uh, Microsoft like Azure. So I so they don't actually own the servers. They actually um, lease them or rent them, whatever the paradigm is. Uh, called from one of the bigger cloud providers, which is an interesting uh, question is, so they're somewhat captive to one of the cloud providers. One of of the cloud providers saying, "Ah, you're doing, you know, thank you for your business. We've made a lot of money, but we don't want you to continue as a customer because we're going to be rolling out a competing product. Um, So, it is interesting in this particular case, it puts the cloud providers in a interesting quagmire. And there's other companies of that sort that have built their entire business using a combination of cloud provider products or services. So would the cloud provider ever want, want to compete with this company that has built the entire business within their uh, cloud and i and my question and my take is it would not be in a long-term best uh vested interest in cloud providers to be doing that i i think that they have uh for the long run uh they don't want the reputational um you know problem of or the reputation of shutting down businesses that have built on their cloud platform, because then that would stop future companies that would be building their services on their cloud platform. So I don't think that that would be a very long-term smart move for any of the major cloud providers. So to clarify, um, I I think I got it, but I I wanna make sure. Um, Are you talking about kind of like interference from a cloud, a, a server provider in like what they would who they would do business with in order to kind of like incentivize or or disincentivize that that competition right right right, right. yes for example aws has a couple data warehouse platforms one of them is aws redshift one could say that that uh, competes with Snowflake, not on the total parity scale, but commonly in the like, uh, very uh, typically in the marketplace, uh, Redshift and Snowflake are two of a, of a handful of very popular platforms. So if AWS wants Redshift sales to go higher, then they can say, Snowflake, we don't want you to run and host your servers on AWS. So that's entirely possible uh, in order to help out their Redshift sales. 
Interesting. Okay. I'm noticing a parallel between Walmart and Amazon, these kind of mass retailers, and this business model of kind of being that infrastructure through which businesses operate and taking advantage of that to control competition. So we all know that retailers have generic brands. And I actually kind of like this idea because it it's generally used for the for good. Um, where if a brand you know notices they have a lot of demand and they double their price then at, at a Walmart store, then they'll create a generic brand and sell it basically at cost to draw the price of the alternative, which has now which has been increased substantially to bring that down. And I think that's that's cool. I don't know. I'm it. I see the other side too, though. I'm not you know. I'm not sold. Uh, there's a lot of criticism to go around. <laughs> so, so, but, but this is a business practice. This does happen, and it happens at every retailer. Uh, Walgreens has it. Um, uh, Amazon has it. Um, so, so, be, and they all, and they come by these generic names: Great Value, Amazon, something. So, um, do you think that in a future? Um, revenue stream for cloud providers could be doing a similar thing when a SaaS program that runs through their their servers becomes too overpriced. Can they create a similar version of it and also offer it uh, for much cheaper using their program and even like kick them kick the original people off of their site? Do you think that's a possibility? So that's an interesting question. It's not a question that I have spent a lot of time thinking about. So if you have some type of, let's say, software as a service provider, which is doing great, and margins are doing well, and maybe the prices are going up, one is I think that you would draw, um, you would draw competition from other companies that want to compete in that same space. So outside of that cloud provider you you know it should uh encourage you know like investment and research and other companies that want to do something similar so i would think that that is the first that's the first uh form or source of competition to that provider um secondarily as what you were saying could a, cl- a cloud provider uh, then build a uh, build a solution that would be competition. So there's a couple thoughts that I have about that. One is that's really not necessarily going to be their core focus. So creating a, a software as a service platform is typically pretty complicated for things that are of very high value. For example, very famous software as a service platform is Salesforce, right? Uh, Salesforce started out as a platform, as a service, software as a service. So if you were to create a competing product to Salesforce, it's not trivial. It's very complicated. And a cloud provider, I mean, that would be a pretty big like distraction for a cloud provider. So one, it's got to be worth it to them to be like distracted and, uh, you know, like invest a bunch of money and talent in management resources um into that secondarily i would say that they would probably be very cautious 
about doing that because that might signify to other such companies that would be software as a service say hey it if you do well uh and you are using our platform and you're showing that you're doing well we might compete with you <laughs> you, you know and there could be some i would you know i'm not like lawyer but i wonder if there's some some antitrust things is that you can see see what the code is running on the platform and i just think it would actually um long term you know in the short term that might help the cloud provider but in the long term i think any cloud provider would say you can build something and we promise not to compete with you i think that that would really uh give them a, you know i think that if cloud providers started to do that a lot of software companies would not want to use the cloud provider yeah in the, the first place yeah, yeah absolutely I don't want to use Amazon, but I do anyway. <laughs> Amazon has is very rich, full of various products. You know, it's uh, they truly have a very uh, wide, uh, wide amount of products. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the thing. That's that is the the unfortunate side. Is like we do vote with our dollar, but um, off, sometimes that conflicts with what we want to vote for. In it, yeah, you know what I mean. True, and I think it's actually like it's uh, truly like interesting because like Amazon, the company, has a couple different businesses that are very very different. They've got their flagship where they started as a retail platform, and their retail platform is what you pointed out. They've got some of their own products that they sell as well as it's a platform for other people to sell pop, you know, to sell products. So it's a retail platform, but second of all, they have a hosting business, which is doing very, very well. I've always wondered how long are, how long is this mammoth company going to stay as one big mammoth company? And when are they going to spin off like AWS, the, hosting company into its own separate product uh, because I've known other companies that don't want to host their business on AWS because like Amazon is a competitor to them. Um, so I've really wondered if one day they're going to spin off AWS as its own like independent publicly traded company. It's certainly a, a really successful business model that was ahead of its time and it's it it just really um it you know there's businesses that follow consumer needs tend to succeed really well and this was like that exact idea like they started from a basic consumer need just like a bookstore and then just grew uh to cover all of the demand that was growing and they had the infrastructure already built to just expand. It's really interesting. I want to ask about your experience with paid search. Paid search is uh, very hot right now. in the, just in the marketing world, it gets a lot of attention, a lot of investment and, you know, and, and by a lot, it's in the many millions uh, for even a middle-sized company, mid-sized company. 
um, uh, per year. So tell me about your experience in paid search and yeah, we'll start, we'll start there. Yeah. So I've been at two, if not, you know, maybe three companies that have utilized paid search as a way to get customers on to the platform. Um, one of them truly had, you know, truly had a large, large spend in terms of paid search uh, in order to bring customers, in order to purchase what they were selling. Um, so there's a couple different things on paid on paid search. One is what you mentioned. It's a very effective way in order to get customers to view your product or your service. Um, but also it's a true marketplace. So in the world of paid search, you can pay up to a certain amount of like money uh, in order to get that click uh, and that have a person go and potentially purchase. Um, but also what what we did in paid search, there's there's a there's a couple different things. One is we looked at what was the total effectiveness or the net effectiveness of of buying ads and of paid search. So the total effectiveness, for example, if I type in something, let's say that I want a shiny red car, so I type in red sports car and stuff or Porsche comes up and Ferrari and Mazda Miata and I click on one and I buy one, that's probably worth the $15 that they might uh, spend in terms of that. Um, but by and large, not everyone that is going, going to uh, type that into your paid search and click is going to buy one of those cars, right? So one of the challenges is looking at what is your total spend in paid search and dividing that by the actual transactions of customers, which is buying things. Uh, so for example, you might uh, spend $1,000 in various paid you know, search. And if you have uh, 30 customers coming to your site and actually doing and actually purchasing, then that net cost is about $33 per transaction. So you might have 20,000 people that are clicking and uh, viewing, but not purchasing. So you really need to look at the common like numerator is your total spend, and the like denominator is how many people are actually you know purchasing something. So that's one of one of the challenges that we had. Uh, in figuring that out and associated with that too is not only are they going to be you know when exactly do they purchase so they might click on your site and purchase on day one but it's possible that they go to the site they enroll in an email like marketing program so they get emails maybe every day every week maybe after two three four weeks then they go and you know buy. So what's really gotten them to purchase? Is it the email marketing program, or was it the paid search? You know, so really taking a holistic picture of it's not just the last touch, so to speak, of 
the last touch of the company to that customer, which might have been like email marketing. It was really a combination of uh, the paid search that got them to the website in the first place. They were like interested in the product, let's say a Porsche. They signed up for, uh, you know, they signed up to get like newsletters and like promos. And then they, and then, and then they truly like eventually purchased. So we also looked at what was the total cost, composite cost of acquiring that customer. And that, you know, was a um, variety of different marketing programs. And we decided to go uh, back in time for, for a certain period of a, a, a time and then, and then look at what those marketing touches were and those costs. And then the challenge was we had to constantly recalculate what that marketing spend was. So let's say today you spend $1,000 on paid search, and by the end of the day, one person has actually made a purchase based on the paid search today, right? So your cost to have that one purchase is $1,000, right? But then tomorrow, if three more people purchase based on the paid search that happened today, then you have a total of four people that have purchased. So your net cost per, you know, person that purchased is $250 per person, so on and so forth. So we were, so it was a pretty complicated like algorithm that would uh, look at what the total cost would be for paid search and truly like distribute that on a rolling basis on the total number of people uh, that has, that has uh, purchased. And then you also have the cases, what if you have $1,000 of paid search and no one purchases it, you know, <laughs> you know, so you need to like distribute that paid search because that's truly marketing spent, right? That was money that the marketing department paid for paid search and it didn't become fruitful. Um, so really looking to like uh, spread that cost over all of the customer basis so uh that was the other challenge that we had and and that was what we thought was a fair way to like distribute what the marketing cost of paid search across all of the viable purchases let me ask you uh, about the relationship between measurability and value to a customer so there's i'm 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 wondering, is there an inverse or a direct positive relationship between how measurable a certain marketing tactic is and how effective it is on the customer uh, experience and journey? And what I think is that the most valuable touch points a customer has actually don't get recorded in any database. They're either thoughts, they're discussions with friends, they're influencers that they are thinking about that use that product it can be so abstract and that emotional you know decision that happens is probably like the most attributable to a purchase but we don't measure it we only measure certain stimulus 
things that the customer is exposed to, which is a small fraction, right? It's it's kind of looking at it from the opposite perspective, kind of outwards in, and it's really tough to know what somebody's thinking when it's out, outwards in. Um, and so I think that there's a inverse relationship wherein the things that are the hardest to measure actually have the most value to the customer experience. And then conversely, everything that we can measure has a, has a much smaller impact to the customer decision. What do you think? What's, what's your reaction to that? I think that there's definitely something to be said that there's other qualities that people are factoring in to their purchase that really difficult to quantify. For example, reviews, the product reviews, right? So if you uh, are checking out a product in today's world, there's product reviews that tell you what other experiences are. You know, are we factoring that in? Probably not. Uh, there's also, as what you talked about, word of mouth or social media, and people talk about, you know, what was your experience in, in you know, like having this Porsche with this transmission, with this, you know, like engine or so on and so forth. Um, and if there's a lot of people that say, this is fantastic, this is wonderful, this is the best car, that makes you feel like you might want to buy it too, versus if there's people that saying, oh, I is ahead, transmission problems cost me $4,000 or so on and so forth. You might be like, ooh, wow. Um, and it's really very difficult to quantify that uh, based on the marketing touch points. And I think that that has, um, that has a very large factor. That's, all, you know, that's a very personable factor. And I think that we have all been uh, hit and we are hit a lot of times with very superficial sounding great marketing campaigns and I think that we have learned to like discount them greatly uh, and we've learned to value other people's experiences very highly because it's really what other people experienced with them product with that service so i think that we value that extremely highly or more highly especially with the ability to get lots of different feedback from uh from other people's experiences very quickly so i think that you're spot on with that i'm not sure if it's totally like inverse or like not um but that's another factor that I don't think in in my experience that we've been able to really quantify well. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I, I think it's more directional than uh, anything you could really plot out. Um, but but yeah, I'm I'm thinking about it because I think that in the future we will have smaller and richer data, and I think what that means is we will have more first party data on representative groups of people and practices will be around extrapolating to a larger population and um, instead of purchasing the data for a larger population. Um, and I think that's a big difference um, in the way that a lot of companies run right now because it's a lot easier to just buy 
a bunch of data and use that to activate, you know, um, outwards marketing, you know, uh, on, but, uh, that's not, that's not going to be a thing forever. Um, or at least so I've heard right. And, and from the direction that politics is going, uh, legislation, I mean, uh, from the direction that legislation is going, it's definitely in the direction of consumer privacy and, um, and lessening that brokerage of our personal data. And so, you know, forward-thinking companies are putting in practices right now to operate on first-party data. Do you agree? Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't have a strong opinion about this, nor do I uh, have a lot of tentacles in that space. What I've heard is it, it's been very questionable or problematic what control do people have over their data, you know? And I think one of the challenges that we have now is you have very, very little control over how your data is really used. I mean, almost every company sends you this statement uh, at, you know, on a like yearly basis or so it feels that explains the way that they use your data, but very rarely do you have a choice to say, oh, I want to share this, but not share this, or or no, I don't want to have my data shared. Um, so that's, I think that um, Europe is in front of us in uh, the ability for people to opt out of data sharing and I think that the U.S. is catching up or is playing catch up in that space. And there's additional areas of maturity that we have in being able to really protect your shopping data, your browsing data, whatever data that you have, your profile data. So I think that that's an opportunity for us to get more intelligent. However, that shopping data and profile data about customers has also allowed a lot of our products or services that we use to be totally free. You know, for example, Google is totally free for us. We don't pay Google for the ability to look up phone numbers. Back in the day when I was a kid, if you wanted to know a phone number, you would type in 411 into your phone and you could say, I want the phone number for, you know, the Taco Bell, and you would be charged. You know, <laughs> yeah, that was back in the 1970s, 80s. Uh, so you would be charged for getting the phone number. A person would ask you questions. <laughs> and there was a big hefty fee. But now you can go to Google and say, what's the phone number of the Taco Bell near uh, me? And it's for uh, free. So. You get that service for free, but now, as uh, accompanying with the overall package, they now know that you're interested in taco food or Mexican food or tacos, so that helps them out. So, you know, so yes, uh, getting a sense of your personal profile is, you know, it comes with benefits as well. How many of us pay for their Facebook accounts? It's free, you know, so it's not like it, if you were charged for 
10 20 dollars to use facebook i wonder if people would still do it you know so i think that that's a pretty interesting question it's almost like when i was a kid growing up we would have tv and the tv was free you would have those rabbit ears you would get three four five different channels and they were free but you know but for that cost you had like ads which were not ads they were called commercials <laughs> right <laughs> there were commercials and that's the way that they paid for that at this time you've got the same thing but these commercials are really customized they're tailored to just you and they're called ads interesting i i like how you drew that that parallel so if we were to draw that out into the future, do you see any future where there does not exist this relationship between advertising and a sort of freemium model where it the product is available for free with the catch that they're selling advertising? Do you think that's going to be a thing kind of forever? For as long as I can see, you know, which is the next several years i would guess you know because things change pretty rapidly i think that we're going to follow the same model as what we have now that companies can use your profile data they're leveraging that for very targeted ads and that works out you know um so i don't see a world initially when the internet really became popular i was always expecting well when are we going to have to pay for this? And just the business models have, you know, come and tweaked and turned. And I think that that will be, we will follow that paradigm until and if there's real government regulation saying you cannot use people's shopping profile unless they explicitly give you the uh, right to like do that. So, if we have hard and fast, very firm regulation that stops that, that makes that truly like optional, then I could see that people would be charged for this. Um, but you know, it does not look like that regulation is about to go forward. Is it could, uh, but it does not look like that's very likely in the short to like medium term. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So in marketing, there are a lot of um, there's a lot of talk about bringing in machine learning and advanced um, algorithms to uh, improve the customer experience. And and one of the recent technologies that's been making its rounds around um, you know tech companies has been recommendation models and deciding um, either a next best product or a next best piece of content for a customer. Um, and a lot of these are built on machine learning models and other data science models. So um, what is, what's your experience with it? How does it work? Uh, how does it improve the customer experience? Yeah. So I was at a company that we were actually, um, we were selling gift cards uh, of all types of possible brands throughout the country within the US. So we had gift cards to all types of restaurants and retailers if you wanted to go to uh, play golf or anything, any type of place that had gift cards. Typically, we would have 
we would have those gift cards on the secondary market. Um, so it was a truly a unique, I, I can't think of a similar business that really had that versatile experience of what, of what, of what you're interested in uh, shopping for or, you know, buying. For example, if you go into Walmart, you're, you are there for maybe food, maybe products, but that doesn't tell you if you also like, you know, pizza or if you like to go skydiving. So in this particular platform, we had all these cards, but we would show you on the front page the same card. So you would see the the very same cards that I would see, but you and I are very different people, right? So like you might like to go out and get a good burger where I might like chicken, you know, sandwiches and our friend might like to get Mexican food. So we came up with a recommendation like engine, so to speak, that would recommend for you the various retailers, which is really gift cards that we thought would be applicable to you. Um, so for example, one might think, well, if you like burgers, then you might want to get um, gift cards to McDonald's, Burger King, Red Robin. There's, you know, there's a plethora of different burger places. And the same thing with chicken sandwiches too, for example. So the question was not what does this one product person think are similar cards, but we have thousands of different retailers, right? So it's not really reasonable to have one person come up with what are comparable or similar type of brands. So what we did is we wrote a data science program, machine learning, if you want to use that phrase. And we were like, okay, how can we find out if, if someone likes burgers, where, what type of cards do they buy? So we were very fortunate that we had very good like, analytics of what do other people purchase and what do other people shop for? Uh, so let's use the world's most popular burger place. I don't know if it's the world's, but like McDonald's, because you brought it up. Other people that bought McDonald's cards, wh what other cards did they purchase, right? So that's one of the questions that we asked. And the other one was, what other ones did they shop for but not purchase? So that would give an like, indication of good recommendations that we should show you of what did other people do which are similar based on what you've shopped or purchased. So it's very possible that, you know, if you've purchased something for McDonald's, you like other burger places too, which is totally true. But it's also very possible that of those people that have gone to like McDonald's, they also shop at Walmart or shop at Target, or they might go to Sears or something of that sort. So that actually gave us very interesting associations of what did other people do uh, that bought that particular brand? Where else did they shop at? Uh, and that was really neat. 
uh, because we were then able to come up with something that was really tailored, personalized, based on what you've shopped for and purchased. And we actually skewed it so that if it was more recent, uh, something that was more recent, then we actually like increased that value as opposed to something that was 90 days ago might not be as applicable um, based on you know time. The other factor that we did not factor in is geographic preferences. Uh, so that's something that we could have and probably should have if we had more time. So maybe people in California, let's you know say, are more health conscious than the people in another part of Bailey country. So that's another association that we could have looked at the geographic location of where people are because there could be regional availability of particular brands and there's differences throughout the country on how we consume different products and services. Do you think that with enough consumer data, um, there could be a different offering that's kind of the opposite of a recommendation model where it actually lives on the consumer's device and tells the consumer if they if people who were interested in buying something that they're interested in typically regretted it or if it wasn't a good idea <laughs> or something oh, like that. Fascinating. That's I never thought about that. So like maybe I did buy I did buy stuff for a particular retailer. I went there and I had a bad experience. That's an interesting uh, that's fascinating. I wonder, I'm just thinking that out, how would we get that feedback? Unless it, it's possible that we have like a um, global national feedback, <laughs> you know, it's almost, yeah, it's almost like recommendations, right? Would I eat the, at that restaurant? Like, again, yes or no. Um, so that's entirely possible. Yeah, we would just have to think about how to get that feedback. Yeah, um, there's. Uh, I I don't want to mention too much, but I I do. Uh, I am on the steering committee for Tiki, and that is a data company that it it's essentially an application that lives on your phone, and allows you to swipe through your privacy settings of what you don't want to share with third parties versus what you would like to anonymously monetize and send and and sell, and it, it creates. And it basically monetizes, let's say you don't want anybody to use your microphone, but uh, yes, they can like anonymously read, um, you know, some kind of data that you're okay with sharing, right? Maybe it's like, well, I don't, I don't know. It depends on the person, I guess. Um, but like, let's say you, you were okay sharing your emails anonymously. Let's say you were, for example, and companies were willing to pay top dollar, you know, like it was a somewhat good amount of money, then there's a group of people who would do that, right? There's there's a group of people who, and if they were representative of the larger population, then with a small group of people, you could really understand what's happening in an industry or just a, across an entire consumer market. So that if is all we need, and it doesn't have to be Tiki, but that's the kind of company that could create that offering 
It's a company that understands consumer data and has a vessel for collecting representative consumer data. That is the company that could create. So Nielsen, Nielsen also, right? Um, there's there's all sorts of uh, companies. I, I think Nielsen's probably the the most uh, known, uh, but any any data company, Axiom even, um, that that cr- that houses a bunch of data could create a model that is al- almost on the consumer side, where they're telling uh, consumers, you know, the if if a product that they're interested in is generally good or bad, and then we can take that one step forward and say that some companies would probably want to pay you to not tell consumers that people typically regret buying that product. And so you could have a premium tier of insights where you could really know, you know, the, the dirty secrets of, uh, of all the products. Um, and so there's like a further kind of monetization tier to that idea. So I think, I think it's interesting. I don't know about you. I think that that sounds, so there's a couple of thoughts that I have. One is getting the insight of what other people thought about the product or service would be truly helpful. I mean, how many times have you gone to a restaurant or purchased this product? I'm like, I'll never go back here, you know? So I think that that would, that would be truly helpful. And having that factored into the recommendations, I think would be um, very helpful. Um, the other, the other thought that I have is we should be careful so that, um, we all know that there's some fake reviews out there, right? So I've gone to various retailers and I, and I see this like review and it's broken out in paragraphs and it's got headings and the English is just perfect. And it's like, this is obviously <laughs> something that was paid for. I mean, it is like professionally done. Um, so it's possible that a company could plant, you know, if you have a competitor that you're paying other people to provide negative reviews to, you know. So one, I think that we need to be careful about that. The other thing is the there's such a variety of different tastes to like interests, um, you know, so people are, are so like diverse. Like if you're talking about restaurants, what I like, you might not like, you know, we just had Chinese food a couple of days ago, family gathering, what I had, I thought was great. What, um, what my kids had, they thought was not that great. Right. So it was, <laughs> so things are so distinctive unique um i think that i think that that's interesting but the beauty is in the beholder in a lot of different times so for example if you're buying a car some people might say oh i want a very sporty car a fast car other people might want just a reliable car something that's always going to work it doesn't have to be exciting and sexy and the other people might just want something that's more physically more comfortable, very comfortable seats, and it's easier for me to get in and out of. Or another person might say, hey, I really don't care. I just want something that works that's cheap. You know, I don't want to be spending a lot of time. So it depends what you're truly like optimizing for and what is really important to that person too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
And then that's how you can create different audiences, right? Like it's, it's about the behavioral differences between uh, different segments in your customer base and that can create the basis for different marketing campaigns to address the different motivations. Just, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about Apple and how they, they kind of, that's all they do is market, market to different kinds of consumers, whether it's people who are really interested in photography or security um, or design or socializa- socializing. Um, they, they have different ad campaigns that highlight um, these different kinds of motivations that people may have with their product. And they do it really well. I mean, they're they're all branding, right? You're not going to see like 50% off iPhones today only, you know, click here. Um, they, they're all all premium branding, um, upper funnel stuff, and they do it really well. Um, and and that's, and you kind of touched on it, is it's all about the motivations of the consumer and what they want to get out of the product and, um, and addressing that. And it, whether it's recommendation models, whether it's campaigns, this is a very... Uh, core marketing concept that that you must be customer focused in that in that way i never thought about that in fact that's something that like i never knew that they had different type of uh campaigns based on different segments but i think that that makes a lot of sense i mean i'm sure that there's uh magazines or various websites that focused on like photography and that would make sense for them to highlight how good their cameras are and the various things that you can do with the, like Apple phones, you know, uh, versus other people might be very worried, like what you talked about security. They can talk about the app store and what they, you know, are filtering for within the app, you know, store and various other qualities of the operating system of the phone. So that's something that I never thought of, but that makes a lot of sense. And there's other people that just want something that looks really cool, that that is the latest uh, product and is really what they're like lusting, you know, you know, for. So that makes a lot of sense too. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I I do. And I don't know that as uh, like officially, like um, that, that's not like based on somebody at Apple that told me it's, it's just my, you know, but the good thing, the interesting thing about marketing is I don't have to be on the inside. The marketing is on the outside. Like that's, I'm just reading what they're putting out and kind of summarizing it. Um, but it's obviously no secret that they market that way because I've been an Apple customer for many years. And um, that's, that's what, and I've always revered their branding. Even in high school, I created knockoff Apple ads for clubs that I was involved with because I really loved how they uh, how they were had so much spunk so much energy and um, they they used to have like rock and roll music and um, they, they still might and uh, but obviously it it's going to evolve um, but they always had that really good energy um, and excitement that's what I remember and I remember actually, you know, like Apple in the 1980s, before the iPhones, when they were a computer seller, and they had actually really good TV ads um, that really made you capture the like, imagination of what of what a person could like do. 
Uh, so even back then, when they were a very different company selling different type of products, predominantly, uh, their ads were very strong and very well thought out too. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm remembering the 1984 ad, and that's another example. Um, and uh, and and that was an award-winning ad, right? That was like the best the best ad. So um, yeah, that that really brings home the point of um, upper funnel branding kind of marketing really appealing to those core consumer drivers towards the product. Jay, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you much for having me too. Awesome. Thank you, Jay. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.